all the other kings on earth, and he is the one who saves us, meaning Jesus is the only savior of sinners in the entire world. If you have your Bibles this morning, I trust that you do. If you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 12. The Gospel of John chapter 12, and we are week 31 into our Gospel of John series. Now, after today, we are taking a break during the Christmas season, and we're going to be in a Christmas series entitled A Thrill of Hope, looking at um, pictures of hope in Scripture, all pointing to Jesus. But uh, And then we'll, back in 2023, we'll come back to the Gospel of John, and it'll take us all the way, of course, and up until Easter. And uh, excited about that, but... Week 31, that you may believe, is what we call this series because that is the point. Belief is the point. Either believe in Jesus as the Son of God and have life in his name, or if you've done that, keep believing. Grow in your belief in him. And let me set up today this way. I'm going to venture to say that all of us have heard of Ripley's Believe It or Not so Robert Ripley was a syndicated cartoonist who began in 1918. He would draw pictures, and he was an explorer and lover of all things odd, unusual, and even weird. So he started Ripley's Believe It or, or Not, and he really surged forward when he hired a man by the name of Norbert Perwoff, who spent the next 52 years of his life, basically six days a week, 10 hours a day, in the New York Public Library, digging up facts, odd, unusual, weird facts. And it went from a comic strip to something in newspapers, magazines, televisions around the world, and now 29 Ripley's or not, uh, believe it or not, museums filled with unusual, weird, odd things. If that's your thing, um, you can go there. But I want to begin with a little believe it or not test uh, for us this morning. So inspired by Ripley's Believe It or Not, a little believe it or not test for us. So here's the first one. In Tokyo, Japan, if your trip is under 50 minutes, it's faster to take a bicycle than to get in your car. How many of you believe that? How many of you do not believe that? Well, that is a true thing. It's good to believe that because you will be better served. In fact, I think it's the same in India. It'll get you faster where you want to go a whole lot faster than a car. Next, the Sahara Desert is the largest desert in the world. How many of you believe that? How many of you do not believe that? That is good that you don't believe that because the largest desert in the world is actually Antarctica, of all things. You heard it here first. Next, the Mona Lisa has no eyebrows. How many of you believe that? How many of you do not believe that? Well, you should believe that because she doesn't have any eyebrows. Basically, during the Renaissance, it was fashionable for women to shave their eyebrows. So if anyone wants to bring that back, don't. <laughs> Next, uh, Elvis Presley never played a concert outside of the United States. How many of you believe that? How many of you do not believe that? Well, he did not. He played many cities all over uh, the U.S. He never went out of the United States. Next, French fries originated in France. How many of you believe that? How many of you do not believe that? All right, so you are correct. It originated in Belgium. And then here's uh, three more. So one, during your lifetime, you will eat the weight of about six elephants. How many of you believe that? 
Now, some of us, like just said, bingo, is probably working on their seventh elephant, but that is true. The average six elephants, of course, after Thanksgiving and Christmas, many of us are on to the seventh one. Um, next, kind of unusual one, a dog's sweat glands are in its paws. How many of you believe that? How many of you do not believe that? You should believe that because their sweat glands are in their paws. And finally, finally this, God provided only one way for mankind to be saved from their sins, and that is through Jesus Christ alone. Do you believe that? Oh, to God that you do. Sadly, what most church researchers are finding out is that many in our country who claim to be Christians do not believe in absolute truth, and over half of them who claim to be Christians don't believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So let me set it up this way. Professing Christians, people who say they are Christians, do not believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, which means, hear this, hear it here first, they're not Christians. They, they are not Christians. The reality is we have to follow him. We have to follow him for who he is. He is Savior. He is Lord. And the text that we come to this morning is a transitional text. The public ministry of Jesus is ending. The private ministry of Jesus is beginning. As we said, when we get to the beginning of John 12, we now enter the final week of Jesus' life on earth. And Jesus is about to begin to focus on his disciples, but his ultimate focus is upon the cross. So let's dive in. Let's behold the way of the cross. And we have a lot of verses to read. So normally we stand up in honor of God's word. I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you sit down in honor of God's word today as we read these verses. Let's begin with verse 27. And it says this, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said they had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people. That's pantata ethne, all kinds of people, people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Who is this Son of Man? Let me pause for just a second. So what they're saying is this. Listen, we read the Old Testament. The Savior, the Messiah, is supposed to live forever. So how can you say you're going to die? And here's the deal. When, when you read the Old Testament, and when they read the Old Testament, they couldn't differentiate between Jesus' first coming which told us clearly of his death, and his second coming, which told clearly of um, his reign. And so that's what they had a hard time with. Now verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. 
For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his, meaning Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There is no sadder statement in Scripture that I know of. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Verse 44, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let us pray. Father, we... Thank you for this, your word. Jesus, we thank you for why you came. You came to die. You came to lay down your life for our sin. You came to be sin for us so that we can become righteousness in you. And Lord, we pray today that you would, Lord, cause belief to happen in this room, maybe for the first time to believe Jesus in you as Savior and Lord, or maybe, God, to strengthen our belief in you. And Lord, to strengthen our rejoicing in our view of the cross. Lord, just have your way. Speak, O God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And you may stay seated. So how often have you thought that you were in a woeful season in your life, a season of suffering, pain, loss, and grief, and that if you just hung in there, you would eventually enter into a season of, of wonderful things, a season of healing, blessing, a joy, celebration. But it, it seemed as if that season of wonderfulness, of joy and blessing just never came. All of us can probably relate in some way, yet let me just say this. Let me lay this before you today. Life does not have woeful seasons and then wonderful seasons. Instead, woeful and wonderful things happen in our lives in every season. The problem is we oftentimes miss the wonderful things because we're so focused on the woeful things. Sometimes all we choose to see is the bad. All we choose to see is that which is against us. And we, in doing so, we fail to see all the millions of ways God is faithful every day of our lives in preserving us, keeping us, holding us, providing for us in big and small ways. Oh, that God would open our eyes even in the difficult times to see that he is just as faithful and he is just as good and he is just as present. May we not miss that. And apparently by your silence, you need to hear that again. So I might preach that one yet again, that we will stop, brothers and sisters, focusing on the woe is me and understand it's not woe is me, it is God is for me. And if God is for me, what can be against me? That is the reality of our lives. So in John 12, we hear from the Lord Jesus in his final days before the cross. What Jesus did was wonderful for us, but for him it was absolutely woeful. 
It was a bad Friday for him. So it could be a good Friday for us. Now we know Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He was born to die a sacrificial death. He knew that. He, he wasn't surprised by that. It wasn't a good plan gone wrong. That was the plan from the beginning. And we know that the death of Christ reigns over all of Scripture. It reigns over the Old Testament. As you walk into the Old Testament, it doesn't take long before you see sacrifice. In fact, Old Testament prophecies speak about his death. Daniel 9 says that he will be cut off, describing his death. Zechariah 12.10 says he will die by being pierced. Uh, Isaiah 53 describes in detail his substitutionary death for us. Psalm 22, as we read at the beginning, is, is almost as if David is writing it from the very foot of the cross. There are even scriptures in the Old Testament that speak of Jesus' betrayer. So first of all, we can say that his death is the theme of the Old Testament. Yet when you come to the New Testament, his death continues to be the theme. As we said last week, of all the Gospels, 30, almost 30% of the Gospels deal with the very last week of Jesus' life, pointing to his death. His death is the reason he came. 1 John 3, 5 says he appeared to take away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The cross is the theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's the theme of the church, and the cross is even the theme of heaven. In heaven, we hear, worthy is the lamb who was what? Worthy is the one who was slain. His death is still spoken of and rejoiced in, even in heaven. So think about that reality. I think of the words of George, George McCloyd. McLeod, excuse me, I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm going to read some of it that's not there, but he says this. I simply argue that the cross must be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as in the steeple of the church. I'm recovering the claim that Jesus wasn't crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on the cross between two thieves. At the crossroads of politics, so cosmopolitan that they had to write his name in Latin and Hebrew and Greek. At the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble. That is where he died and that is what he died about. Mainly sin, our sin. And that is where Christ's men ought to be and what the church people ought to be about. In other words, Christians are to live in the cross culture. We glory in the cross of Christ because of what it means to us, namely life. His death means life for us. Jesus embraced the woe of the cross, knowing that through it, wonderful glory would come to the Father, and that through the cross, wonderful goodness would come to us. So what I want to do this morning is I want to unpack four contrasting truths about the cross that we see here in this scripture and mainly from the words of Jesus. The first is this, the way of the cross is a way of trouble and glory. The way of the cross is a way of trouble and glory. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. And the reason that Jesus' soul is troubled here is startling. 
Here was the Son of God, the one who stilled the storms and told the disciples, stop fearing. The one who in John 14 was about to tell his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And yet here he says, my soul is troubled. What does it mean? He tells them, don't let this happen. But he's saying, this is happening to me. But we understand this when we see what Christ was dreading. Jesus knew the crucifixion was at hand. Jesus knew that within the end of this week, he would be dead upon the cross. Only a crucified Savior could avail for our sins. And this meant separation from the Father as he bore the sins of the world. It was not the physical death that Jesus dreaded. It was spiritual death. Jesus knew that in a few days the Roman whip was going to rip his back open and bring more pain than we could ever imagine. He knew that great spikes would be driven through his wrist and through his feet. He knew that a crown of thorns was going to be placed on his head. He knew that suffocation was coming, that he would gasp for breath. He felt the anticipation. He knew what was coming for him. But if we just think that Jesus was dreading physical anguish, we do Jesus an injustice. What was really troubling his soul is that Jesus knew that on the cross, God the Father would dump all of the sin of all guilty people, past, present, and future. In that moment, dump all of sin upon him. He would bear not just their sin, he would bear the guilt of their sin. Therefore, his, his trouble of his soul came in anticipating not just physical suffering, but anticipating divine wrath, anticipating spiritual suffering, anticipating spiritual separation for the first time ever from the Father. Listen, I know people who themselves go crazy because of their own sin and their own guilt. It eats them up. And just imagine having all of the guilt of the world upon the sinless Son of God. Paul said to the Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the agony of the Son here, the agony of Jesus here was not that he would be nailed, but he would be judged by the very wrath of God. What an intense struggle, even though we know Jesus was born for this. He came to die. He willed to do this. None of this was forced upon him. But that doesn't lessen the overwhelming trouble of the reality of the sinless one becoming sin for us. And of course, for the first time in all of his eternal existence, being separated from the Father. So much so that he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have three hours of darkness on the cross where all of the sin of the world was upon him. And then Jesus went on in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then we're told, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Three times in Jesus' ministry, God the Father spoke from heaven to the Son. The first in Matthew 3, at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus comes out of the water and God from heaven says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
Later in Matthew 17, or at the, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus radiates, doesn't reflect the glory of God, he radiates the glory of God to disciples. Moses and Elijah show up. They begin to speak about how Jesus is the center of and the point of the prophets and the law. And of course, Jesus is about to, speaking of his exodus, his departure. And then Peter begins to talk, and God cuts him off and says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Basically, Peter stopped talking and listened to him. And then here, as Jesus is about to be at the cross, he prays, Father, glorify your name. And the Father speaks from heaven, I have and I will again. And I will and I will Here's what we know. What drove Jesus forward, what drove Jesus to the cross was not just love for us. Yes, he loved us. The cross proves his love for us. But what drove Jesus to the cross was, don't miss this, the glory of God. The glory of God is what drove him to the cross. And what heights are there in that prayer? Father, glorify your name. How do we make practical application for this? Think about this. What about when our soul is troubled? Your soul might not be troubled today, but your soul might be troubled tomorrow. Your soul might be troubled next week or next month. What about when friends desert us? What about when enemies abuse us? What about when loved ones die? What about when when horrible things fall on us? We need to learn from Jesus. When his soul was troubled, he prayed, Father, Glorify your name. In other words, Jesus prayed, Father, if I lose my health, glorify your name in my sickness. If I lose my wealth, Father, glorify your name in my poverty. If I lose my reputation, Father, glorify your name in my humiliation. Father, if everything turns against me, Father, glorify your name in my despair. And if I must lose my life, Father, glorify your name even in my death. Oh, what a prayer. Oh, what a prayer that we ourselves can pray in any season of our lives, in the greatest moments, in the worst moments. Father, glorify your name. So the way of the cross is a way of trouble and glory, but secondly, the way of the cross is a way of judgment and salvation. So a way of judgment and a way of salvation. Look at verse 31. It says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now, the word world there means cosmos. It typically doesn't just refer to the globe. It refers to the system and the thought and the ideology controlled by the devil of this world involving all humanity who are born in rebellion against God. So cosmos, the world. God so loved the world, not speaking of bigness as much as the badness of this world. So now the judgment of this world. So when the world crucified Jesus they thought they were judging him but instead they were being judged by him the cross was their judgment and then Jesus says in verse 31 now will the ruler of this world be cast out so the cross was the beginning of the end for Satan the grip of Satan upon humanity was broken at the cross now there are five casting outs of Satan in the Bible and how you choose to interpret the Bible can choose to see how you put these but the the first was when Uh, Satan was cast out of heaven as the permanent resident. Of course, that happened before the fall of Adam and Eve. The second casting out of Satan was at the cross when the power 
was taken away from Satan to destroy lives. The third casting out will be during the tribulation when Satan is cast from heaven to earth. Now, what we know now from Scripture, according to Job, is that Satan is still somehow, someway allowed into the counsel of God as he went there uh, for Job. The fourth casting out will be when Satan is cast into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And the fifth and final casting out is when Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Just to sum it all up, Satan is on his way down. And the cross was the beginning of the end for him. He's on his way down and the cross is the beginning of the end for him. And then Jesus goes on in verse 32. And when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking about his crucifixion, I will draw all people. So again, that means pontata ethne, people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to myself. Verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Nothing was more woeful than the cross. As the old hymn says, it is a symbol or an emblem of suffering and shame crucifixion was the most painful most public most awful way to die the jewish historian josephus called it the most wretched of deaths in fact not only were romans not crucified romans didn't even speak of crucifixion because it was so vile yet when early christians got together and said let's find a symbol to represent our savior what symbol did they choose the cross why would God's people choose the most woeful symbol to remind them of Christ? And we know the answer because on the cross, God turned the most woeful thing to the most wonderful thing. Jesus' death brought life. Jesus' condemnation for us brought salvation. Jesus' separation from the Father gave us reconciliation with the Father. In the middle, while Jesus was bleeding and dying, before he was ever rising and living, all was woeful. Yet, praise be to God, things became wonderful. And in this, we learn an important lesson, brothers and sisters, when things are woeful in seasons of our lives, keep trusting and keep walking with God until the end. Don't give up walking with him because you are misinterpreting him based on your circumstances. In the end, we can trust and we can know, brothers and sisters, that our God will turn all woeful things into wonderful things. And he will show us how his goodness and mercy have followed us all the days of our life. And he will show us how he worked all things for our good. That is the promise that we have through the cross. I think of the words of one theologian who said this. The cross is the magnet of Christianity. Jesus Christ draws men, but it is by his cross mainly. You demagnetize Christianity, as all history shows, if you strike out the death on the cross for the world's sin. What is left is not a magnet, but a, a bit of scrap iron. The cross is the magnet for the world. You know what ultimately draws people to Jesus? The cross. At the cross, we see God's or Jesus' desire for the glory of God, and we see his love for us. Now, in the same way, though, according to Paul in Corinthians... The cross also repels people. What does Paul say? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh, that we see it for what it is, his power for us. So it's a way of judgment. 
and salvation. Third, the way of the cross is a way of belief and unbelief. It's a way of belief and unbelief. And this is going to get a little confusing, but follow with me here. Verse 37, it says this, they still did not believe. They saw all the miracles, all the evidence weighed on the scales and said, believe in him. Yet we're told they would not believe. Just think about all the things that Jesus did just in the gospel of John. He turned water into wine. He walked on water over the Sea of Galilee. On the other side, he took a few loaves and fish and multiplied it to feed literally thousands. He healed a nobleman's son from a long distance by just speaking the word. He healed the blind. He healed a paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. The crowning miracle of Jesus' life so far in the Gospel of John is when he raised Lazarus from the dead. If you were to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and count up all the miracles, you would discover 37 miraculous signs that occur where Jesus demonstrated his power over nature, over disease, over demons, and even over death itself. Yet we're told in light of all the evidence, they would not believe. And yet then we're told this, their unwillingness to believe eventually led to their inability to believe. Let me say that again. Their unwillingness to believe eventually led to their inability to believe. Look at verse 38. It says, they wouldn't believe so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Then it says this in verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. Not they would not believe. They could not believe. One pastor put it this way, unbelief is a two-layer cake. It's a fitting illustration for us right after Thanksgiving. But think of it this way, the bottom layer of a cake is, is human choice, human will, my decision, what I think about God, what I think about Christ, what I do with him. And here's the deal, whatever I put on that bottom layer, God will come along and he will add a second layer and what that second layer will do is that second layer will confirm and that second layer will strengthen and that second layer will fortify whatever that first layer is. Meaning, if I say I don't believe in God, I choose not to believe in Christ, I want my will, God will come along and say, your will be done. Have it your way. Remember, remember what God said to Moses. God said, I'm about to harden Pharaoh's heart. Yet we're told before that that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Again, he hardened his own heart. Again, he hardened his own heart. And finally, God comes along and it says God, God hardened his heart. Basically, the perpetual ongoing decisions that you make, God will eventually fortify. We don't know when. We don't know what uh, when that might happen, but the reality is there will come a day if people continually reject Christ, reject Christ, reject Christ, the Bible says God will harden their hearts where they, not that they won't believe, where they, they can't believe. Those who persistently harden their hearts will have their hearts hardened by God. And that is tough to hear. Yet what we know in this is this is an affirmation of human responsibility that we must believe. But there's also a solemn warning today for any who persist in unbelief. And the warning is this. Don't presume upon the grace of God. 
Don't trifle with the overtures of God's love toward you and God's love for you. You should not assume that you'll believe in the future. Well, I'll believe one day on my deathbed as if you know when that will be. Don't play ridiculous games with the gospel. Eternity is at stake. And the Bible says this, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to do business with God. Don't put it off. Don't play silly games with the gospel as if times are in your hands. No, your times aren't in your hands. Your life is in his hands. We don't know, but here's what we do know. Right in this moment, he is speaking. Right in this moment, he is moving. Right in this moment, he is convicting and pricking hearts. And what we do is we don't put it off. We don't put it off. We treat it for what it is. It's a gift of God. I'll never forget a, a cousin that was married, or a guy that was married to my cousin. He came to church uh, a few times. The last time I ever saw him before he walked out of his family, he said, I will never go to church again. He said, there's other ways, I, other things I can do. Um, to feel bad about myself. I don't need to come in and feel bad about myself, and that's all church does. And all I could do is look at him and say this. That is a gift. Conviction is a gift from God because God loves you so much that he refuses to let you stay where you are. He refuses to let you stay where you are. And yet in our human sinfulness, we go, no, I'd rather have my way. I'd rather have my way. So the way of the cross is a way of belief and unbelief. And then finally, the way of the cross is a way of light and it's a way of darkness. When we get to verse 44 again, Jesus again in the Gospel of John begins to put together how we honor the Father versus how we honor him. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. If you don't see me for who I am, you're not honoring the Father. If you don't bow your knee to me, you're not worshiping him. Or to put it a different way, if you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you don't have God as your Father. If you don't have Jesus as your Savior, you don't have God as your Father. If you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. In verse 46, then Jesus says this, I have come into the world as light. That whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Meaning this, faith, faith brings life. While his unbelief darkens life. Faith lights up our lives. Unbelief darkens it. And light is a perfect metaphor for the person and work of Jesus. Because like light, Jesus brings a reaction to our lives. Like light, Jesus brings life. Like light, which is a symbol of truth and purity and goodness, Jesus embodies all of those virtues. Like light, Jesus illuminates your path and mine. Like light, Jesus provides safety for us in the middle of his will. And like light, Jesus brings joy to our lives. The assumption here, notice the assumption is that unbelievers are in the dark. Yet if they believe, they don't remain in darkness. If you are an unbeliever, you are in the darkness. But if you believe, you don't remain in darkness. Which begs the question this morning, don't miss this. Brothers and sisters who claim the name of Jesus Christ, are you walking in the light or are you walking in darkness? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in the darkness? 
First John says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Are we walking in the light? Or are we claiming to be children of light while we walk in the darkness and have no effect whatsoever on the darkness with which we walk? Oh, that we would understand, brothers and sisters, we are called to be light in the midst of a dark world. And then in verse 47, Jesus says this, in one of the most misinterpreted verses for unbelievers, For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And of course, an unbeliever at this point would say, See, that's why I love Jesus and I hate Christians, because y'all are so judgmental. But Jesus was never judgmental. He was all love, love, love all the time. He never spoke about sin whatsoever. He never called anybody a whitewashed tomb or said they were full of dead things. Jesus never did any of that. Jesus was just love all the time. And here's what we step back and we go, have you read the gospel? You read any of it? For here's the point. In his first coming... Jesus did not come as judge. In his first coming, he came as Savior. Yet, according to this book, he will come again. And when he comes again, instead of riding a donkey that we saw last week, he will come on a war horse. And he will declare war on those who will not and have not believed. He will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goat, the wheat from the the chaff. And this ought to make us tremble with holy, healthy fear. And I say that, and please follow with me here. Here's why we should tremble with healthy fear in this moment. If you are a child of God, there is no fear, there is no condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ if you are a child of God. But where we should tremble in holy fear it's something that we often forget. That if Jesus were to come back tonight, there would be people in our lives that would, instead of going to hell, would spend eternity in, in heaven. Instead of going to heaven, would spend eternity in hell. You know what we call those people? Husbands and wives, sons and daughters, grandchildren, cousins, friends, coworkers. And we live our lives as if the world's belief is true, that all you got to do is be good, and you're going to go to heaven. And we neglect that the Bible says there's none that are good. No, not one. The only way you will ever see the face of God is through Jesus Christ. And that's not just true of the world around us. That's true of you and me, and that's true of every single person in your life and every single person in my life. And we need to stop living as if the world's pattern of being good and going to heaven is right because it's not. And we need to get serious about the things that God is serious about. And he is serious about the souls of man so much so that he sent his son to do what we could never do, to lay his life down, to shed his blood so that we could have life in him. And the only way our lost loved ones will ever come to know eternal life is through Jesus Christ. So therefore, the worst thing we can do is keep our mouth shut. And the best thing we can do is Jesus, Jesus, let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, that we would understand this reality. And then in verse 48, quickly, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus said, listen, I didn't come to judge, but when I do come back, my words that I spoke will judge. I think of John 6, where Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, Jesus, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. 
You alone, Jesus, have the words of eternal life, and those words will judge all of man. I heard a story this week of a young man who moved to a big city, and it was his, his first time that he had been in the city, so he wasn't used to the traffic patterns, and he was about to cross the street not looking both ways, and there was a truck coming that he didn't see. And right before he was about to step out into oncoming traffic, a hand grabbed him from the front and pulled him back. And then the truck passed, and of course this young man looked back, and there was a sweet um, older man that basically just said, um, son, make sure you, you pay attention to what's going on. Eventually they would both cross the road, and he would never see the, the older man, he thought, until two weeks later. This young man was in a courtroom. He was being indicted for theft. And as the young man looked up, he noticed that the judge looked familiar. And in his mind, he said really quickly, that's the guy who saved me two weeks ago. So he spoke up and he said, Judge, just two weeks ago, you reached out your hand and you saved me from oncoming traffic. Surely, Judge, you can pull a few strings and help me again. To which the judge looked at him and said, Young man, two weeks ago I was your savior. Today I'm your judge. Two weeks ago I'm your savior. Today I am your judge. Brothers and sisters, we will either die in a state of condemnation or we will die in a state of salvation. And Jesus is the dividing line between those two states. For only through faith in him alone as Savior and Lord do we enter from death to life. And when we enter into that life, we are his forever. It is therefore urgent that we believe, grow in our belief, and that we tell others of God's love for the glory of God and for us in and through the cross. I think of the old hymn that used to say, it said, or it used to say, and it still says, I must needs go home by the way of the cross. There's no other way but this. There's no other way home but through the cross. And it says, I shall never get sight of the gates of light if the way of the cross I miss. If you miss the way of the cross, you'll never see the gates of heaven. And the chorus is this, the way of the cross leads home. The way of the cross leads home. It is sweet to know as I onward go, the way of the cross leads home. It leads home. I want to close today with the words of Pastor C.J. Mahaney, and he says this, nothing else is of equal importance. The message of the cross is the Christian's hope, confidence, and assurance. Heaven will be spent marveling at the work of Christ, the God-man who suffered in the place of us sinners. The life of Jesus went through the cross, and brothers and sisters, so must ours. So must ours. The way of the cross still leads home. Oh, that you would know that. Oh, that you are headed home. Oh, that you are headed for home through your faith in Christ. If not, may today be the day of salvation. And let me just say this again. In the midst of seasons when woeful things take over, when the bad things are trying to push out all of the good, all of the wonderful ways that God is faithful each and every day. Pray the prayer of Jesus. Show me your glory. Glorify your name. Glorify your name even in this. May that be our prayer even today. Glorify your name and whatever it is I'm going through, Father, glorify your name in it and through it.
I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to ask the praise team to come forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we rejoice in you. And Father, that's what we're asking today. Glorify your name. If there's any here or listening online that don't know you, glorify your name and bringing them from death to life. Glorify your name and convicting them of their sin and allowing them, drawing them by your spirit to you and allowing them to call the name of the Lord and be saved. Glorify your name through salvation. But also, Lord, glorify your name in the lives of so many brothers and sisters here that are walking through not just good times, but walking through the difficult times and focusing on the difficult. Glorify your name, God, through increasing our trust in you, increasing our faith in you, through strengthening, God, the way that we believe, the way that we live, the way that we trust. Glorify your name. We pray that in Jesus' name.